Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and for um, giving us giving us this uh, sacrament of our union with you and with each other. And we ask you would guide this discussion about the sacrament. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing our trek through the Articles of Religion. Um, we are on page 608 and 609 um, discussing the Lord's Supper. So last week we did article number 28, which is at the bottom of 608. And um, we got through the first part of it, but did not hit that very last sentence. So we're going to read the, the whole article again, and but just pick up with that last sentence, unless there's anything in those other two, other three paragraphs that y'all want to revisit um, again. So, article number 28 of the Lord's Supper. The Supper of the Lord is not only a sign of the love that Christians ought to have among themselves one to another, but rather it is a sacrament of our redemption by Christ's death, insomuch that to such as rightly, worthily, and with faith receive the same, the bread which we break, is a partaking of the body of Christ, and likewise the cup of blessing is a partaking of the blood of Christ. Transubstantiation or the change of substance of bread and wine in the supper of the Lord cannot be proved by holy writ, but is repugnant to the plain words of Scripture, overthroweth the nature of a sacrament, and hath given occasion to many superstitions. The body of Christ is given, taken, and eaten in the supper only after in heavenly and spiritual manner, and the mean whereby the body of Christ is received and eaten in the supper is faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. Okay, so let's talk about that last paragraph since we did hit the other stuff. And if when we're done with that, if y'all want to revisit any other stuff, that's fine too. Um, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper was not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped. So this again goes back to some of those um, medieval practices um, that in some places do continue to be, to, to be observed uh, in, in, in Catholic circles. Um, but due to the doctrine of transubstantiation, one of the things that happens in the Middle Ages is that the people just aren't really taking communion. Only the priests are taking communion. And since every priest is ta has to take communion every day, um, they've got a whole mess of altars going on in each church of a different size. And the pre you have a whole bunch of priests saying communion at all at the same time at a bunch of different little altars. They're pretty much only taking it themselves, the people are not taking it. And um, a lot of times, especially these midweek masses, um, the people are paying for them so that the priests during the mass can pray for the souls of their ancestors to get out of purgatory. So you see all of these medieval abuses kind of get wrapped up together in what's going on and the reformers are rightly um, rebelling against. So what, what's happening, because the people are not taking communion, instead what happens is when the, when the priest lifts up the host during the service, you know, when the bells ring, you all know about that, um, the people gazing on the sacrament being lifted up and then later being consumed by the priest, that's their spiritual communion. They're not really taking communion, they're just having spiritual communion. And so this is another one of those abuses that the reformers are rightly um, going against. So they're saying, okay, the, the, and then at the, at the same time, as part of the outworking of the doctrine of transubstantiation, you have these 
um, kind of parades of the of the of the consecrated host in the monstrance, um, big processions where the people will worship as the host is getting processed around the community or the church or whatever. And so the reformers are saying, this is not what the Lord's Supper is for. What is the Lord's Supper for? What do the Lord say? Take and eat, take and drink. And so, so all of these things that are a logical outgrowth of that doctrine of transubstantiation, the reformers take issue with. So it's not there so that you can reserve it for worship. You can carry it about in those processions for worship, lift it up for spiritual communion and worship, or worship for worship. That's not what it's there for. It's there for you to take and eat, take and drink. Yes. Monstrance. Yes. Yes, the monstrance is the, um, yeah, that's, that's the um, case, so to speak, the display case. And sometimes those are kind of in a form of something that can be carried. Sometimes they're just kind of something that sits on the altar. Um, but in all those things, the, you know, the reformers are insisting, yeah, that's not what it's there for. Um, what, what's going on with the monstrance? Um, so what, what ends up, the, the question that then end comes up within our circles over the years. So first of all, we need to remember that, that there is very much addressing specific issues going on in the Middle Ages. That's the same thing with when um, the church gets rid of all the, all the Eucharistic vestments that we, that we do have now. <laughs> um, for several hundred years, that wasn't used in the, in the Anglican church. But again, that's because there was a lot of medieval baggage associated with those vestments. Even though that's not inherent to them, that's the way it was for in those times. So, um, because of this article... And, and I think the right theology that is, that is exercised here, you would not see in a parish like All Saints the benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, you know, that, that service with the monstrance where there's, um, you, you display it, you do some prayers, and you're, and you're worshiping that way. You're not going to see this concept of spiritual communion um, in, in, in All Saints, and classically you would not have either. But you do notice we do reserve the sacrament. The main reason why we're reserving the sacrament is so that deacons or lay Eucharistic ministers, or in some cases, even the priests, can take the sacrament to those that are homebound, those that are sick. And that is, a pro that is something that you do see among some Anglican circles pretty early on, um, at least by the 17th century in, among the Scottish Episcopalians um, and, and some of the higher churchmen in England. You do see that happening. But it was very clear we're reserving this for the sake of taking it out because there is ancient precedence for that. In the early days of the church, um, they, when um, things were a lot, you didn't have very many country parishes. Everything was still left in the cities because that's where the gospel began to take hold as the missionaries would go to the cities. In the earliest days, the bishop would always celebrate and then he would send the deacons with parts of the, the bread and the wine that he had just consecrated out to the outlying areas to take it to those other parishes who, who didn't have a bishop of their own or whose bishop was only there in the city. And from this grows the practice of taking it to the sick and the homebound and that sort of thing as well. So, um, you know, so we maintain that practice. Now, in, in all fairness, our liturgy in the communion of the sick 
liturgy assumes you're consecrating liturgy there when you're doing the sick. So it's assuming a priest is doing it. It's assuming you're, you're doing a, a communion service there at the home, which includes consecrating the bread and wine. On a practical level, that's not always possible in those visitation situations. Um, you go to a hospital, you got five minutes because there's doctors in and out the whole time. Um, or you go, you, or there's someone who's just not strong enough to be awake for that period of time. So um, I do prefer when I can doing a, a visit for the homebound or the sick to do it the way our prayer book intends. But if that's not possible, you know, I will do it from the reserve. Um, we used to do here from time to time what's, what is uh, actual having communion from the reserve midweek. I don't think that's, the, that's a really good practice. It divorces the sacrament from the word and you, you really lose a lot of the important aspects of the service when you do it that way. So we've discontinued that um, in, in recent years and I think that's a good thing to discontinue. And the only potential reason why we may do something like that is say we're in a situation where we do have to have a deacon or a lay catechist take a morning Sunday morning service because for whatever reason, all the priests are out of town or we have planted enough churches to where I'm the only one and I'm out of town <laughs> or whatever that goes, you know, whatever that goes, then we may follow up morning prayer with um, optional communion for the reserve of those that want it. That's a possibility. Um, we ha I haven't decided if that's the way we would do that, but that is a possibility um, of doing that. But in general, we, we, we don't want to go, go beyond what the article says here because there are problems associated with that theology that led to these practices. Okay, questions, comments on some of that. And we did talk about that theology previously, but I'm happy to revisit some of that if we need to. Charlie. Uh, I missed last week, so... <laughs> um, the, uh, the article seems to focus a lot on the right perception of the mm -hmm. sacrament. Um, I wonder if you could speak to the... Um, how, how to balance that with the objectiveness of the, the sacrament and the grace that's offered there. And, um, you know, trying, trying to not fall into the... the Am I receiving this worthily? Right. So that's a that's a really good question um, because we do look at the sacraments as objective promises from the Lord. You know, this is not based on my feelings, not based on what's going on in my head. This is this is the Lord doing something here, um, and. I want to address that a little bit more with the next article. So if there's another question on this one, let's do that. Otherwise, we're going to move on to the next one because the next one addresses that issue very well. And it becomes, this next article becomes a real point of contention specifically between us and the Lutherans over, over that very issue that you're bringing up, Charlie. Okay. So anything else on number 28 or there we'll go on 29? Okay, let's hit 29. Of the wicked, which eat not the body of Christ in the use of the Lord's Supper. The wicked and such as be void of a lively faith, although, although they do carnally and visibly press with their teeth, as St. Augustine saith, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, yet no wise are they partakers of Christ, but rather to their condemnation do eat and drink the sign or sacrament of so great a thing. So, the, um, 
on the one hand, we do have this focus on the right reception, um, receiving by faith, receiving um, in repentance. And as we talked about a couple times, this does boil down to the things that are addressed in that exhortation to confession in our service. You know, ye who do earnestly and truly repent you of your sins and intend to lead a new life, following the ways of God, um, you know, living in charity with your love and neighbor, come and, come and, come and eat. So what happens if you've got a person sitting in the pews that says, gosh, I don't really know if I'm repenting in this way. Um, our, our liturgy, our tradition, our understanding based on what we see in the fathers, based on what all the reformers would have said, you know, that, that first generation of reformers would have said, no, um, it's not about how you feel here. You have a, if, if you are saying this confession and you have you know, this intention, at least in some way, I mean, <laughs> you know, you're not going to this saying, yeah, I know that I have um, this tendency to sin in such way, and I don't care, I really like that sin. You know, th that's, not, that's not what's usually going on. Usually what's going on is someone is saying, I have this tendency to sin in a particular way, and I know myself well enough to know that I'm probably going to fall back into it again. Can I really call myself repentant? And the answer is yes, that very struggle is part of your repentance. Because even if you are afraid that you're going to fall into it again, and even if statistically you're probably going to fall into it again, you really are trying not to fall into it again, right? That's your intent. Your intent is not to be that, that, that guy. So, that, so we, would, we would always say that, that that public confession, that general confession suffices for that, that, those criteria. If someone has a troubled conscience where they just can't work through that, that's why, that's why you need to set up an appointment with your, with your priest or some other spiritual director to, um, to clear the conscience. I, I forget what, uh, what phrase, Bob, you used last week when we talked about that. You said you, you had a really, a really good turn of phrase for, um, for, for for that issue when you when you can't kind of clear your own conscience. Something's eating you. Something's eating you, yes. <laughs> when it's eating you and you just can't get it out, that's when you need to see your priest. So this worthy reception, you eat, and even someone that it's something's eating you and you go up anyway, that is still worthy reception. Right? When it's not worthy reception is when you're the person who who says, I don't care. I'm sinning anyway, you know, thumb in the nose of the Lord, okay? Or, yeah, so, so that, that's, re that's really the main issue. And so in this case, if that's the case, where you are coming in abject rebellion to the table, then article number 29 applies, where you are not getting the benefits of Christ in the supper, you're getting condemnation. Where the, um, where the Lutherans and the Reformed and this is really is more of an inter-Protestant fight than it is a Protestant Catholic fight because the nuances among the Catholic Church, their official doctrine are such that you can really wiggle room any of this altogether. Um, that was not the case when the articles were written, but it is now. Uh, the, so, so the Lutheran understanding of the Lord's Supper, their belief is based on the idea that um, you cannot separate Christ's two natures. Um, so you can't say that Christ is bodily in heaven, but spiritually here. That's their understanding. 
you know, they would say to say to say that you know Christ is bodily in heaven but spiritually here in the supper. They would say that you are um, falling into the heresy of Nestorianism, you know, separating Christ into two people. The reform counter to that is by saying that Christ's physical body is omnipresent. You know, physical bodies don't do that. So to say Christ's physical body is omnipresent and therefore in, on every altar, um, they would say that's falling into the heresy of monophysitism, where you are confusing the two natures of Christ to the point where you end up having only one nature. Um, I think in reality, both are really kind of overdefining the issue there. The emphasis that the Reformed would make, and our articles do lean towards the Reformed end on this, is that spiritual benefit, that spiritual reception. And again, remembering that for the, for the Reformers, that spiritual reality is the most real reality. Um, and so they, would, they wouldn't say that Christ's presence is subjective. You know, they wouldn't say that, um, that only for those who are, who are worthily receiving is Christ's presence. They wouldn't be saying that. But they would be saying that the benefits of that presence are only there for those who... So, so rather than partaking of Christ, because, because in their mind, if you're partaking with Christ, you are getting those benefits, right? Rather than partaking of Christ, you're partaking of, of, of condemnation because you're taking it unworthily. The Lutherans would say, no, you're getting Jesus either way, but in this case, you're getting Jesus with benefits, and in this case, you're getting Jesus with condemnation. Whereas, again, the Reform would then counter, you don't get Jesus with condemnation. So, I mean, it really, is, it really becomes a very, very minute issues, and on the ground, I don't know any Anglican pastor that would say that Christ is absent unless he's there for you, right? I, don't, I, don't, I mean, there might be some, but that's, that's, a, that's a high minority. Similarly, I don't know any Lutheran pastor that would say you could have Christ and damnation at the same time, right? Bob? You know, there's, there's a lot of discussion of this on some of the internet. I've turned a lot of that off. But one thing right. I remember, almost hateful, if you will, on one thing, you met a comparison, contrast, the guy said, Jesus didn't say, take a bite out of me. He said, do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> right. And I'm not trying to, I'm, right, that, right. Just, that just stopped me cold. Yeah. And, and that's, where, that's where some of those medieval superstitions came into play. You know, this, hey, I, you know, I was, you know, I, I know a guy who knows a guy whose mother's first cousin um, took a bite of the Holy Sacrament and um, all of a sudden things were bleeding and it turned into a finger, you know, that sort of thing. Um, which, you know, I mean, that, that was a common, and to be fair, the Roman Catholic Church battled and does battle those kinds of superstition. I mean, you know, they're not into that either, but that was very common in the Middle Ages, and some of the ways that so, some of the implications of the Roman doctrine lead to that kind of superstition. But at the same time, what happens in our circles is that as rationalism starts to sneak in in the 18th century, rationalism and pietism, those two extremes of, you know, pietism is everything's your emotions, rationalism is everything's up in your head. As those start to sneak in, um, we start to divorce the sacrament from its efficacy one way or the other. 
You either you got to feel the right way to get the benefit, right? That's what the pietists would say. Or, um, oh, that just doesn't make any sense. Therefore, we're not going to believe it is the way that our theology actually says that it is. Um, and then you, you moving on into the 19th century, you get, you get romanticism come in where it's like we have to have all the right aesthetics, you know. We, you know and, and, and so you have the Anglo-Catholics wanting to, re, wanting to battle the articles over these issues because it doesn't fit the romantic notion of the church that we always knew, you know, from time on past. Oh, the Reformation is just this terrible bump in the road and this is evidence for it. And then you have the evangelicals reacting in a very negative way. Oh, you guys are just papists in disguise. You know, and, and, and these battles are not the battles of the articles. And they really shouldn't be ours either. I mean, unfortunately, we still often look at theology from 19th and 20th century eyes, you know, re revisiting a lot of battles that really shouldn't be battles anymore. Um, but... Yeah, so we, we can, we don't want to make the article say things they are not. Certainly, Thomas Cranmer would not want to see a tabernacle on, you know, on the altar. And Cranmer wouldn't have wanted to see an altar anyway. He would have wanted to see a movable table. But that's largely because of what they were reacting against in the medieval church. Because when we do look at the greater history of the church, we can do these things without some of the abuses. Um, there's a, there's a, I, I, I don't, my Latin is so bad, forgive me, but there's a, um, a Latin phrase that's used in legal circles that translates to the abuse of a thing does not nullify the proper use. Um, are you a Latin guy, Charlie? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> A little bit, okay. And, you know, that, but that, that's something that you, that you do see in legal circles, but it's, it's the same is true in theological circles. Um, you know, the abuse of a thing does not nullify the proper use. Uh, and so um, that's really what's going on with a lot of this. Okay, um, five minutes. Let's hit number 30 real quick, and then we, because this is, this is pretty, um, pretty, pretty straightforward, and then if there's any questions, we can do that, even if we go over just five few minutes. Number 30, of both kinds. The cup of the Lord is not to be denied to the lay people for both, parts of the, for both the parts of the Lord's sacrament by Christ's ordinance and commandment ought to be ministered to all Christian men alike. Um, when the lay people did take communion in the Middle Ages, it was often only the bread. And the fear was that they might accidentally spill the cup and therefore commit a sacrilege. And so gradually the cup gets denied. And at the same time, you've got this theology that says the fullness of the sacrament is present in either the bread or the wine, so you don't need to um, necessarily have both. While that is theologically true, again, what did Christ say? Eat, take and eat, take and drink, right? And so um, we don't want to use our theology as an excuse for disobeying the Lord's ordinance, right? <laughs> Uh, and, and that's kind of what happened, what happens in the Middle Ages. So um, the cup, the bread and, and the cup in both kinds becomes a big deal for the reformers because they want to do things the way Jesus told us to do things. And nowadays, in almost everywhere in Roman Catholicism, they do it in both kinds as well. There are a few dioceses where the bishop still does it the old way, um, but it's, 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 it's not necessary. Um, and... 
yeah, so, um, but yeah, both kinds, that's an important thing. And we don't keep communion from the lay people. You know, that's the other important thing. Okay, questions, comments? We got like two, three minutes. Any, any, anything on, on all of this stuff? Yeah, just a quick question. I don't know if you covered it. I stepped out for a moment, but what about the, uh, the whole changes in we no longer need the con-celebrate, that kind of stuff? Con-celebration yeah. is a brand new invention of Vatican II that basically said rather than have a bunch of side altars because we, every priest needs to have communion every day, then, then you can kind of get credit for celebrating if you're um, kind of the assistant priest doing it the right way, saying certain things at the same time. You see that just blow up huge in the 1960s. Um, that assumes a couple things. One, it assumes that if you're a priest, you need to be taking communion every day. Where is that written, right? That's not, that, that's not, that was not a practice of the universal church. That really is one of those medieval Roman things. Um, and number two, why do you need more than one celebrant? You know, assisting priests should be assisting priests. Celebrant should be the celebrant, right? Um, so yeah, we, we, we don't, we don't, we don't do it that way. And the only, ex and it was never done in the Anglican world until the 1970s. It was never done in our, in our circles, um, until then. The only times you would see that classically or something that would look like that is if during an ordination, um, you have more than one man being ordained to the priesthood at the same time, because oftentimes we want to give both of those guys their first celebration at that time. So you, that's, that's pretty much the only time we would see that being done. Um, it's not an abuse. It's just not necessary. And it's just importing some stuff that we don't need to import into our liturgy. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, let's go ahead and dismiss then. It is 11 o'clock and I will see you all in um, communion in mass or next week as the case may be.